Abundant is probably too little a word. It's overwhelming for our customers. And I think we have to think, are we contributing to the overwhelm or are we helping the overwhelm? I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. Our guest today has a long history of driving commercial change in pharma at one company, 32 years to be exact. We're joined by Deb Kava, the U.S. Oncology Portfolio Strategy Marketing Director at Merck, the company she's called home for her entire career. From the field sales arms race of the 90s to the industry's current obsession with Omnichannel, Deb has seen the commercial model grow in complexity from more vantage points than you'd think. We'll hear what's working and what's not working, and what the industry can do to simplify and improve the customer experience. Deb, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Deb, these days, it's quite rare for somebody to stay at the same company for 30 plus years. You've had a number of different roles at Merck that's given you a lot of different vantage points. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path and about those roles and what you've learned from each stop? Yeah, so I started with Merck out of college. I went to UCLA for my undergrad and I started out as a representative in Los Angeles. And then from there, throughout my career, I've taken many different roles on the sales management side, sales operations, brand management, aka marketing management, etc. And then I was asked to, in the early days of digital marketing, take on a role to sort of define what does digital marketing mean to a pharmaceutical company. And then from there, took on a variety of roles, really thinking about not only what is what does digital marketing mean to an organization? How does an organization structure a strategy? How do we really make that come to life as an important way to engage our customers and maintain relationships with customers through a multitude of channels? More recently, I've had the opportunity to really expand my career in the space of commercial strategies, more broadly speaking. And so part and parcel of that does include elements, customer engagement, et cetera. And you've had a number of different perspectives in the commercial team. You've been on the sales side. You're obviously on the marketing side right now. So you've seen it from different vantage points. You've been in different therapeutic areas. How has that diversity of perspective, do you think, benefited you? And then would you recommend that for others as they grow their careers? Yeah, because you know what? You start to see some of the common truths across different roles. And I'd say the one big common truth is you've got to really understand the customer and you really have to be honest about what the customer wants and needs. I think sometimes being a business, there's certain areas where you can, you know, grow a business or you belong to certain departments where you really want to make an impact. But all those things fail if the customer doesn't want it. And so really getting honest about what the customer wants, I think is central and critical. Otherwise you're just really ultimately wasting resources. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the industry has taken a number of different turns through the last 30 years. I'm curious, what would you say is the single biggest shift you've seen in the industry with regard to the work that you've done throughout your time at Merck? I think there's really two big shifts. One is the role of data and technology. And when I think about data and technology, especially in healthcare, I'm thinking about it from the clinical perspective, and then I'm also thinking about it from the commercial perspective. 
So, you know, you see this advent of technologies that can process vast amounts of data. You have AI that can help you make smarter decisions as it relates to therapeutics, as it relates to diagnostics. But then the second big area is around the commercial space. How do we consume vast amounts of data about our customers? How do we understand what motivates them? How do we use and leverage AI to predict what's going to be meaningful to them and what's going to make a business difference? And so I think data and technology has just been transformational from when I think about when I started in the company, the data and technology is not anywhere near what it is today. I mean, it's been a profound change, not just commercially or clinically, but in everyone's everyday life. So I think that's one place. And then the second place, at least in the healthcare industry, has been about how those shifts in data and technology influence other areas. And I'd say in the commercial space, one of the more profound areas is the role of the representative. When I started in the company, the representative really was the sole and primary channel to convey information about our products. Now customers are engaging online and they can get probably a wider variety and depth of information very quickly. They're not going to just wait for the representative to um, show up or they may not allow the representative in for different reasons. So I think about how is the role of the representative shifting? Again, being honest, what is the customer need from them? And it may not necessarily be your traditional clinical information, so to speak, because they can get that elsewhere and much more quickly. I have a feeling you're alluding to this or you're, you're setting up my next question a little bit, but what do you think is the single biggest shift the industry still needs to make then in order to be more successful in serving the customer better? I really think it is about, at least on the commercial space, we have a wealth of data, we have a wealth of technology options, I think the next big transformation is going to be about how do you use that effectively to optimize your investments, to engage your customers more meaningfully? I'd say as an industry, we're at a very nascent stage. I've seen this problem. I don't Maybe problem's not the right way. It's a learning curve, right? So companies have sat on a wealth of data for many years. Now you've got technology that can process it. Do we really know how to maximize for the business what that opportunity is for us? Are we asking the right questions? Are we providing the right structure? Are we enabling the right organizational processes and people to really optimize the capabilities that are out there? My hunch is that we're really not. We may buy capabilities, we may buy data, but are we really leveraging them to its fullest potential. I think we're not, even with what we have today. So I think that's like the next big horizon is organizations like seeing what they're sitting on and then starting to think about, gee, how do we structure differently to really maximize what can be really competitive advantage if we get it right first? I'm almost positive you're going to say both to this question, but if you think, you know, you had a theme in there about structure and which is more important and more influential in terms of achieving greater success here? Is it about how you structure your data to be able to use it more effectively? Or is it about how you structure your organization so that the people who are utilizing that data are set up more effectively to partner and to serve the customer? It is really both. You have to have the right data. You have to 
structure it the right way. You have to structure the right people from the people who are getting the data to know what to get, how to get it, how to consume it. And then most importantly, what are the right insights that need to be garnered from it? Or what are the right technologies that different data feed so that the capabilities can sort of do its magic? I think both are really, really important in order to get to that optimal state. I mean, I think most companies are still pretty far behind as far as having it all come together. For sure. It's kind of an unfair question. There's no way you can separate those two, the data that you're utilizing and then the teams that are utilizing that data. They both have to be structured in the right way. So let's talk about omnichannel for a minute because we can't have a podcast on this topic without talking about omnichannel. It's obviously a huge focus for the industry as a whole. But if we flash back to 2008, you are Merck's multi-channel marketing director, and you're responsible for developing global multi-channel programs. So this is 13 years ago. So when you see the industry's fascination with omni-channel right now, do you kind of smile, roll your eyes a little bit, say, uh, it's, you know, I was working on this nearly a decade and a half ago. Do you say, no, this is exciting to see the momentum finally speeding up and we're getting there more quickly. What is your reaction when you see this enthusiasm over omnichannel, knowing that some variation of this term has been around for quite a long time? I'm relieved because I very much remember the early days of trying to convince stakeholders across the organization that they should just invest in digital also from simple emails or videos that can be sent digitally. Like I'm relieved because to me, that progression, it's like when people use the word omni-channel, what I'm thinking about is they're looking at all channels as an option, whether it's a personal channel, a customer facing representative, or if it's a digital channel. To me, omni-channel is they're looking at them all as having equal shots and engaging the customer, delivering the information or the solution or service that the customer is looking for. And it's not about separating a sales force versus digital channels. So in a way, it's a big relief. Like people are looking at engagement channels more holistically because that, in my mind, is a big part of what is meant by omni-channel. It's looking at the whole set of things, whole set of channels you could use to engage a customer. It may be other thought leaders. It may be, it's not exclusive to your own sales representatives. It's what are all of the ways holistically you can engage a customer. And then also thinking through what's that overall experience that the customer wants, being able to know that, to define that, and then to be able to live up to that across your engagement options. So you defined omnichannel correctly in my mind, which is all the channels. But I find that often in our industry, omnichannel is used as a term anytime you're talking about multi-channel. You're talking about the number of channels, two or more. And my question to you is, you've worked on this a lot longer than a lot of other people in the industry. Do you see omnichannel as in every touchpoint, every channel, every actor in the process being a feasible goal? Is it near or is it enough that we are making progress towards multi-channel, towards digital touch points versus in-person and sales and marketing collaborating? How do you see the definition and the reality of trying to pursue what in the truest definition of omni-channel could be quite ambitious to pull off, but still very important? I mean, I think omni-channel is a North Star. Nobody's really completely there. So I think 
in really realizing omni-channel, you have to start with the customer at an end of one because they have different preferences and tolerances for the extent to which they will, you know, accept a representative or accept very specific channels or vendors or just want to be informed by their colleagues on certain things. It's going to depend on what's the type of information the customer seeks and what's the channel agnostically that the customer wants to receive that information through or get that information through. And I think the part of the Herculean exercise is to be able to define that across your customer base and then smartly segment your customers based on the way the customer wants to receive information and what is that information. And then being able, and this is the second big Herculean piece, work with the different stakeholders across an organization that are responsible for those different areas, whether it's a sales force or the you know, digital marketing group or the people working with thought leaders or the people working with conventions and professional societies to be able to very clearly define, here's your role with that specific customer and then to be able to execute against that. I think that's kind of the omni-channel North Star, but, yeah. you know, there's a lot of steps to that. And how is that progressing at your company? So that alignment so that the teams, the individuals that need to work together to make sure that there is the alignment so that the messaging that arrives, the experience that arrives for that end of one customer that you mentioned is consistent. Have you seen the measurement, the incentives, the structural design, you know, improve over the last several years so that you're now seeing the ability to deliver upon that very consistent experience? Yeah, I mean, definitely the intent is there. And I think organizations have been stood up to help us get there. We have quite a journey ahead of us. But I'd say over the last like decade and a half, most companies are probably trying to put the right things in place, the right pieces. I think the next big step is how do you integrate it all? And how do you have like really a cohesive way of developing the strategy across omni-channel? and being able to work as an orchestrated organization to execute that. Where would you say your company is on, you know, the curve as we try to assess the impact of what we've just gone through in the last 18 months on the commercial process, on the interaction with healthcare providers? Are you starting to figure out what your go-forward plan will look like and get settled on that? Or are you still assessing the shifts and waiting before you make those kind of commitments, trying to stay nimble, I guess, so to speak, because it has been so unpredictable lately? Merck is at an advantage because it started its journey about 15 years ago. And I think investing in data and technology that gives us a competitive advantage. So when COVID hit, we weren't like trying to figure out how to do digital for the first time or figuring out how to structure sort of the right engagements for different customers. So I would say post COVID, we've had to be nimble. I think as an organization we've shown, we've been able to be nimble and respond to some of the different obstacles that, are, that have been thrown our way. But in an effort to realize true omni-channels we were talking before, I don't think we're ever done. We still have, I think, a lot of opportunity ahead of us in parallel. One thing that we spend a lot of time working with our customers on, and I'm sure it's very similar for you, especially the different roles you have, is striking that balance between global and local. So there's obviously great advantages to standardizing 
on different processes or different tools or technologies globally because you can share best practices, you can gain efficiencies, but the local teams know their markets and their customers best and you don't want to shift so far in the direction of standardization globally that you lose that local competitive advantage. What kind of perspectives do you have and have you kind of developed over your time at Merck and the different roles in terms of striking that balance most effectively? It's a great question. And you know what I've come to learn is different organizations, global organizations, remit can be a little bit different. So in some organizations, that global is the centralized place, whereas in other organizations, global more works to understand what's the common denominator across markets. So we don't have redundancy on those things. But then any extension beyond that, it becomes really the local market's responsibility. To me, in reality, that's played out. So if you look at some of the commercial capabilities, even data, what's allowable from a data perspective can be very different market by market. So you can't really process it centrally for the whole world. Access to sales data, you know, we have that in the U.S., but in a lot of markets, you can't get that at the customer level. And that becomes really valuable in the market like the U.S., right? You do X. It has Y sales impact. If you can't have that sales impact data, then, you know, you're really restrained. And I wouldn't want us in the U.S. to be restrained by legal limitations in other markets. I don't know if different markets have different limitations on technology. They probably do on the boundaries to which you can leverage a technology's capabilities. So I do think when all is said and done, global can, you know, play an important role in maybe making a central buy of a capability or technology, but then how it's used in the market is often determined by the local rules, but then also commercial strategies may be different in different markets. So this is where the capability, its use has to be translated by the market. Yeah, that makes perfect sense and is obviously an important dynamic to get right because you do get the best of both worlds with the efficiencies, but also the local knowledge and application of strategy in that way. You, as we mentioned at the outset, are the portfolio strategy director in oncology in your current role. How long have you been in oncology right now? This will be my sixth year total in oncology. So a very basic question to start. What did you learn in that shift as you entered into oncology that maybe surprised you in terms of how you needed to adapt your experience and your approach to what is a very unique part of the market and the way that commercial teams interact with HCPs? I would say the complexity. I mean, throughout my whole career working in both primary care and specialty, I've never encountered the complexity of oncology. We sit on a brand that helps many patients as a result of being indicated for many different tumor types. We have to engage a lot of different customer sets. And so the complexity of trying to figure out how to go to market across the complexity of having so many tumors. And said another way, you have so many tumors who want to tell their story to a single customer. But you know, again, like I was saying, you have to flip that equation backwards or upside down and say, well, what does the customer want to know about? Just because it represents a business opportunity for one tumor, if that tumor only represents 2% of the customer's business, was it really worthwhile to deploy that content versus the five other tumors that represent 90% of that customer's business? 
So how do we prioritize for the customer? And as I was saying in the beginning, get honest about what's important to the customer, whether it's your tumor, whether it's the type of information they need, whether it's the type of channel they want to engage with. I think that's where the magic is, but it's challenging to get there sometimes because we have such a huge portfolio of opportunity. Yeah, and it's only natural that Obviously, the way a company is designed and the way a team structure is designed, if it's around indications or tumors, then they have a motivation to try to achieve their goals for that particular area. But to your point, the most effective approach will be to flip it 180 degrees and think about the customer's priorities and needs and then design programs to match that. So Deb, one thing you described to me when we talked last week was around the complexity that is growing all around the end customer, and yet the end customer isn't becoming any more complex. It's still an end of one customer that is trying to provide the best possible care that they can, but everything around them in this commercial engagement process is growing in significant numbers. Can you describe a little bit about how you summarize that and how that is really the challenge that the industry needs to get on top of? I think it's one of the most profound challenges. You know, you had asked me earlier about the oncology space and I've never in my 32 year career seen an area just exponentially explode like oncology has. And I mean, it's great for patients, but what the reality is, is you may have a single compound like at Merck, we have Keytruda. It's a single compound with many indications with many more to come and new mechanisms of action that are going to come to market as well. And the combinations of these different entities generate more solutions for patients, which is the good news. But as we try to market multiple promotions, multiple brands, and all the information, the net result is an enormous amount of content and tactics hitting the customer. Now, I have a view of what it looks like within Merck, and I think Merck is just really great in that it's really trying to like be honest about what is it that the customer needs. But I think about what we're doing times every other company trying to engage that very same customer. And if you're walking in the shoes of the customer, you're waking up, you're assessing the patients that you have to see that day. You're working with that patient, you're working with their family, you're trying to make those decisions. They cannot consume the volume of information. And we hear from customers, like they are overwhelmed. The rapidity at which oncology is evolving is so fast. And the information is abundant is like, probably, you know, too little a word. It's overwhelming for our customers. And I think we have to think, are we contributing to the overwhelm or are we helping the overwhelm? Well put, for sure. Well, Deb, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what does the next 32 years of Deb Kava's career look like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the first, I don't first know if I'll 32. be alive. <laughs> That's question one. Will I live 32 more years? I think so. Maybe we won't be recording this on your 64-year anniversary at Merck, but let's transition into a section we call, we're going to call for this episode, obviously, Deb Kava in Context. I'm going to ask you some questions about personal influences and interests that's going to give our audience a little bit more, a little more context, a little more profile about you and what kind of shapes your views on your career in the world. So Deb, who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? Probably my mother, because number one, her strong work ethic, her ability to get through a challenge 
and I've made it very known that I actually love the white space. It's not fulfilling to just kind of go into a role where, you know, it's well known what to do, how to do it, what its remit is. To me, what's exciting is creating new value for an organization. And I found my mom often just faced with challenges and coming up with creative ways to solution. And so I think her influence on me has just carried through in what I've become passionate about. It's like I love having just a white space and figuring out how do you create value for an organization in an undefined path. If money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? Probably working with children. I love children. And I think the common thing between what I love now and when I reflect on why I would want to work with children, I think one of the most fulfilling things as a parent for me was teaching my children how to read. Like you start with the A's and you learn the sounds. And then all of a sudden they learn to read a word. It like clicks. And to me, it's like, you know, that brain was the white space and you made something happen. And so Mm -hmm. it's probably the same sort of sense of fulfillment where you're showing an organization how to reap value out of something they really didn't see before or connect before. It is fascinating. It's probably not a great topic for me to dig into right now as I take my son to the airport tomorrow to go back to college. I'm feeling very nostalgic as you Mm -hmm. see, you know, how they evolve, the kind of people they become, but it is fascinating. What profession would you most not want to pursue no matter what it paid? IT or accounting, because I'm not a detail-oriented person. And if you'd have to like code the right way or, you know, crunch numbers in an exacting way, I'm sure I would entirely fail. Would your IT colleagues be surprised by that or would they endorse that? They would endorse that. (laughs) They should endorse that. All right. What is the best book, film, or show that you've enjoyed recently and why? You know what? I won't say recently, but I'll tell you a book that I think had like really profound effect on me was Emotional Intelligence. So, you know, this Mm. is going back many, many years ago, but especially growing up Asian, you're very much wired into get good grades when you work do the best job work really hard i think that whole emotional quotient factor was something that was entirely lost on me and so that book that single book probably had the most profound effect on me to understand like your ability to build relationships the ability to build trust is really cornerstone to long-term success in any field, in every field. And it's not, you know, just in work, it's in every aspect of life. So that would be, I'd say, the most influential book. To be honest, I don't get to watch TV or go to movies much. Between work and my children, that's really it. Like, I'm just in that crazy phase of life. I love that answer about the emotional intelligence book. We could do a an episode entirely on EQ and the importance of it across industries, our industry and any industry, as you were pointing out. Okay, you're at a family gathering and your eight-year-old niece asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell her? I have a role called marketing. And the heart of my role is to help our customers understand how our medicine can help their patients. That is a great answer. (laughs) Very, very clear and very, very much focused on the most important part of it. I love that answer. Last question here. 
then you're released from the personal inquiry. Your ultimate dinner party for four. Who is in attendance and what are you serving? Oh my. So this is reflective of my stage of life. But honestly, if I can get my husband and my two children sitting at dinner, that's four. <laughs> in the same time, at the same place, that is like nirvana for me. Like well, I'm just in the stage of life where my kids are so active. And I feel like, you know, man-on-man coverage, like I usually take my daughter, my husband usually takes our son, and we're like ships passing through the night all the time. So it's a real gift for the four of us to be able to just sit and have dinner together and catch up. And as far as what would be served, I love ethnic food. So anything ethnic would be amazing. I'm Korean, so whether it's Korean food or I love, love Mexican food, having grown up in California. I love Indian food. I love Japanese food. And I'm adventurous. So if there's a food I haven't had, I'm all in. I would love to try it. (laughs) I would imagine on your family answer, if you're like us, you're like, if the whole family's at the table, I don't really care what's served as long as somebody else has made it (laughs) and I didn't have to make it. That's true. Pizza is always fine. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Deb, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your perspectives with us. Thank you. It's been so much fun. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.